Um, what's up, guys? Welcome back to Culture Bench. This is the Wise Crack Podcast, where we explore the ins and outs of the cultural zeitgeist. I'm Michael Burns, joined as always by the guy who refuses to let me start a Wise Crack Company softball team because it's non-union, Alec Opperman. Alec, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Um, I'm also joined by the person who gave me the kind of sus advice that it was totally fine to wear a tie-dye tank top to a meeting with a group of corporate executives. Serby. Serby, it was bad advice, but how are you today? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Pretty good, although um, I did not sell my product to Apple. Um, but I'm excited to be here with you all, as always. Um, if anyone who is lucky enough to be watching this on video, you're seeing that Alec has a really cool shirt on today. So uh, maybe when you're done listening to the podcast, go back and find the video so you can see it. Is that okay that I'm shouting out your fashion? Yeah, that's fine. Awesome. Um, so we have a lot to talk about today. Um, we are going to get some some analysis and thoughts from Serby on the new business casual. A bunch of people are going back to the office, so let's make sure you do it right. Um, Alec, this is a huge one. Guys, you're talking about sports today. I love um, sports. I'm a sportsman. Yeah, we got a sportsman today. Um, and I'm going to talk about critical race theory because I just want to get in trouble. So I, I threw a dart at a problematic and hot button topics, and, and that's what came up. But first... The most controversial thing of them all, slaps and chaps. Um, we'll talk about what we're liking and maybe not liking since we were last together. Serby, let's start with you. What are your slaps and chaps this go around? So what slaps right now, uh, so many wonderful professional opportunities are coming to my friends, and I'm super, super happy about that. Amazing. Um, yeah, a lot of uh, new roles, a lot of promotions, and uh, what's even more exciting is that they're all women. And I love it when uh, when women in business are in leadership roles, and I'm especially pleased when it's my friends. Um, so it's great to see them become CEOs, founders, directors, VPs, all of that. Um, it's amazing. Also, I uh, just finished the second season of Lupin on Netflix, and it was fantastic. And I'm looking forward to season three whenever that films and is released. And that's the the French heist show. Am yes, I? Am I? It's okay, so awesome. Good. Okay, it's good to hear. Super I saw. I, I see people that like that. I saw some people uh, tweeting their feelings about season two. So we're glad to know it has a Serbi stamp of approval. Yeah. Um, wait, was there a chap involved, or were those just two oh, slaps? My chap. Um, so on the other hand, uh, speaking of my friends, my. Uh, friend's dad passed away oh, no. a couple weeks ago. Shit. Yeah, it's really sad. And I don't have a lot of experience with uh, death and grief. So um, I, I'm i trying to be super supportive and very kind and uh, caring towards her. And I sent her flowers and penis cookies. Um, Sorry, did you, say, did you say <laughs> you peanut cookies, cookies or penis cookies? Penis, penis, penis. Okay. cookies. An appropriate okay. grief gift. Yes. I thought it would yeah. make her smile, and she thought it was perfect. Um, her mom loved it as well, and uh, it was it was fabulous. It was very highly detailed. It was by it's uh, made by a bakery in San Francisco called Hot Cookie. Uh, highly recommend if you're in the mood for a, a penis shaped cookie. Yeah. There are also badge cookies available. Um, if someone would have sent me those after my parent passed away, I would have loved that. I mean, that kind of genuinely, it would have put a smile on my face. Yeah, it would have been fun, and I would have thought this is great that this friend isn't like overdoing it, but is reminding me of of joy and frivolity in life. So I think that's a really cool thing to do. 
but if you're listening just be much better than thoughts and prayers Um, don't send thoughts and prayers send dicks and vag i don't know the second Vag, yeah. and vag cookies. Yeah, vag cookies. And, those looked good too, and they have like rainbow sprinkles in very strategic places. I loved it. Wow, that's really um, fun. Yeah. So, so if anybody has any advice on uh, how to, um, what anything that like if you've gone through a situation like this, what what was um, what what helped you the most, or what did you appreciate the most? Please let me know because I I feel so sad and so helpless, and I yeah. I want to cheer her up. I'll jump in real quick just to say when I, when I had a parent pass away, the thing that I really liked what my friends did, this is going to sound very vague, but just like being there and asking me to do normal stuff because mm-hmm. there's this period where someone passes away and everyone treats you like you're different and it starts to feel weird and you get kind of mad about it. So mm-hmm. I remember the first time like a friend just like asked to hang out and do normal stuff. Mm-hmm. It felt really good. Um, okay. but of course, okay. yeah, I don't know. And I think there's something about that, that if, and it feels weird because in our heads we're like, I can't be normal. You just went through this traumatic thing. What am I going to do? Just be like, do you want to eat, eat a hot dog and watch sports? But that's what they want to do. They might not want to do that, but you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Okay. So, yeah. Thank you. But that's really cool. And it's even, even thinking about that shows that you're such a good friend that you're, you're, you know, wanting to do the right thing. That's incredible. That's so nice. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Um, but don't take Alex's advice. His would be to be really mean. My advice or something. is always awful. My advice is sometimes mean, but not not often. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, so Alec, how about you? What's what are your slaps? And I'll, I'll say potential chaps because you are the bad boy of the podcast who refuses to play by the rules and normally just sticks with toxic positivity and pure slaps. I'm I'm really late to the game, but I did watch. I think you should leave or a few episodes, and it's so just watched it. I'm like four episodes in, maybe. Oh yeah. Uh, it's, it's delightful. I'm so excited. There's a season two. Um, I will, I will seed my chaps time to do divides who commented, uh, just caught me donating, just caught me mid donating plasma slaps work slaps work is good. Chaps the long hours due to employee shortages in service industries. Mm. Congrats for donating plasma, donate plasma, that's donate nice. blood, donate bone marrow. Just basically donate everything. You donate, donate everything. Um, that's <laughs> awesome. Also special shouts to do divides who, was in the chat and donated during our first um, Squanch live recording, but I just wasn't looking at the chat, so I didn't see it till after the fact. And I thought, I hope Dudabides knows that he's loved and valued and not being ignored. Yeah. Dudabides is part of the Culture Binge and Greater Wisecrack family, for sure. Yeah. If you come for Dudabides, we'll, we'll ruin your life and make yeah. you wish yeah, you were never, never born. never send you penis cookies. And never, you'll never get a penis cookie in your, <laughs> in your gosh darn life. Um, were any chaps for you, Alec, or are you, you staying positive with your positive shirt? Staying positive. Awesome. Um, I'll also go very simple and TV based for my slap. Um, I'm liking Loki. Um, you know, all these MCU shows have had a lot of hype around them. I've gotten caught up in the hype and I have for the previous two MCU shows, WandaVision and Falcon Winter Soldier started real hot by the end was kind of like, eh, I'm liking Loki. I think it's going to be good. And also let's, let's, let's get Owen Wilson back in in the rotation of people who are in things. God, it's great to hang out with an Owen Wilson character. And I think he's in the upcoming Wes Anderson film. So I'm excited about that as well. Wow. Um, chaps, this will be like slightly, I guess, personal as, as Serbies was guys, never, never plan a wedding, never oh, get no. married, never do anything. It's so complicated and so difficult. And I, I had an experience of um, choosing to not invite some family members who I might just haven't been close with for years. And I thought it wouldn't be a big deal. It was a big deal. And I've had to deal with the fallout and 
it's just rough. It's such a rough thing. And people's expectations around weddings are so weird. And I have this naive brain that says, oh, it's simply about me and my partner and a celebration of our love. And everyone else gets that. They know it's not about them. They don't get that. They all think it's about them. So if you go down this path, friends, just be wary. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, had, I had to vent that uh, to my friends, uh, my friends, Serby, Alec, and Duda Bites. Um, so before we get into it, Oh, sorry, Serby. You look like you're about to say something. Oh, yeah. So how are you navigating it? Are you just giving in or are you? No, me giving. I I, (laughs) I double down uh, to my own detriment. It's the story of my life. Um, I have had to have some conversations with some people who I think whose feelings were hurt and and try to like explain some stuff. to them. So I have been like, I haven't changed my position, Mm -hmm. but I've been like, hey, I understand how this might have hurt your feelings. Here's where I'm coming from. Let me buy you a drink sometime. It's weird for me because I have one side of my family where I have like 30 something cousins. So it's normal on that side of the family that everyone's not invited to everything because you simply couldn't do it. But this mm-hmm. other side of the family, very small, they're like, we should all be at things because we're small. And I didn't really realize that. So, um, but also, but aren't there, I'm not sure if there are, but are there any like uh, attendance restrictions due to the um, so I'm, uh, We're getting married in the state of Illinois. As of right now, um, when we're getting married in the winter in the state of Illinois, assuming the Delta variant doesn't wreck our society and the fabric of our social life, mm. um, we should be at a, at a number that's okay. And we are, we are going to request that everyone is, uh, is vaxxed up. Uh, see, so like if we still had the attendance restrictions, you could have been like, I'm sorry. Like we're limited in number. Well, well the one move that, that I thought would work, but doesn't, if you tell people, you know, we just want it to be like a casual fun thing. So we're trying to keep numbers low. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But why am I not there? Because everyone thinks they're the <laughs> I fun I want to come to the casual fun thing. Yeah. Just, you know, what? just don't do everyone just elope. Find a nice place somewhere pretty and just elope. Um, you know, Alec, if you ever go down that path, I just think go someplace nice outdoors. Get your partner on the podcast. Let's talk about this right now. We'll do that for the second segment. Um, but before I make Alec uncomfortable and potentially cause problems in his relationship, quick reminder. Um, if you enjoy this podcast, and honestly, even if you only kind of enjoy it, please subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen to this podcast. Um, you could you could do that on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, wherever you see it, or you could uh, you know obviously subscribe to the Wisecast channels if this is how you check it out. And then please rate and review. We love to get good ratings and reviews, and we in particular like if the reviews are fun. If we get fun reviews, we will read them as we often do. I think there might have even been an email between since the last episode where someone else does the game where they say what we all are in a certain categorization of things. So do that. We like it. And it honestly means a lot to us. So do that if you get a chance. But now let's get into the the main course of our meal. Serby, get us started. Um, talk to us about what people are wearing as they go back to work and the changing rules of these things. So I'm super interested in um this return to work because we've most of us have been working remotely or many of us have been working remotely. And uh, it's nice to see like how things are changing as a result of the pandemic. Um, And uh, I read this article recently, or it was like a LinkedIn post. Um, This man has these uh, tattoos on his face and uh, I've, can't remember the exact words of of this post, but the general uh, feeling was that um, he feels that having this tattoo. Oh, I gotta 
I gotta get out of this. <laughs> um, having the having the tattoo hasn't impacted his um, work at all or his ability to find work. Um, and I'm wondering if there's more of that now because I work at a remote company and people have tattoos, um, like full sleeves, tattoos on their chest, their neck, whatever. Um, they have different like interesting hairstyles or they have like pink hair, mohawks, whatever they want to do. And nobody cares. Um, and I'm wondering if now that we've all been at home for a year, many of us have been at home for a year, if this return to work will uh, result in any changes, will people be uh, less willing to cover up their tattoos or maybe they want to experiment with different hairstyles or different like hair dye. Um, also, I don't know about everyone else, but I've been wearing exclusively, I've been exclusively wearing loungewear for the past year. Um, so does anyone else not want to get back into like professional attire or like a pair of jeans? Um, I wore jeans maybe 10 times during, during lockdown. And it was extremely uncomfortable, probably because I gained 15 pounds over the last year, but also because jeans just aren't great. <laughs> so I'm, yeah, I got the stretch jeans. There are stretch jeans. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're not full stretch. Like it's a, it's a mix of the denim and some sort of stretchy material. Uh, they're great. They're much more comfy and, uh, they're better at like being sort of like moving around and being active. Yeah. I have some of those from a company that I guess we're not supposed to buy stuff from anymore. I forget what's okay and what's not okay, but yeah, they're, they're nice in that sense. Cause you can fluctuate a little bit as I tend to do seasonally. I just blew Serby's mind. Yeah. I've been wearing normal jeans. Um, wow. No like stretch. a sucker. Yeah. I literally have to unbutton my pants. Like when I sit down. <laughs> Oh, well, so we're going to start. It's, it's like the blazer thing. You know, you sit down, you unbutton the blazer, you sit back up, you button it back up. But yeah. just, it's just the, the, the jeans version. And, yeah, no, that's but, me, uh, yeah. Except I forget to button them when I stand back up. And so I kind of like tend to walk around like a five-year-old, you know, with like a <laughs> little belly hanging out. <laughs> nice. But I, I feel that general struggle. I've spent much of the past year wearing gym shorts around the house. Like I'm a middle schooler Currently getting ready for PE shorts. class. You're wearing gym shorts with that cool shirt? Yeah. I mean, wow. when I go out later today, I will put on respectable clothing, but it's, it's gym shorts, man. Get you a man who can do both. Um, but that's interesting. I mean, Serby, I think what this makes me think of is like, I wonder if like the, the situation we're in right now is going to help lead the way for a cultural shift in like workplace attire and aesthetics, because it really does feel like a previous generation that established all of these norms in workplace culture. And I know that for a lot of like millennials and Gen Z types, those norms haven't been ingrained into the culture the same way. So I wonder if in a sense, like in a good way, maybe not to use a bad thing in a good way, but like thinking of Naomi Klein's like shock doctrine logic, if this could be like a, a tire based shock doctrine where the crazy thing that's happened in the world could help uh, initiate a new framework where people don't have to worry about that stuff and, and can get a job if they have tattoos or piercings or things like that but then i also wonder as someone who's never really worked in a what would you call it moneyed industry if if you're working in like finance or law or whatever it's still the same and you're expected to look like don draper yeah i i feel like there's certainly a bias probably among the three of us in that in new york and maybe excluding like financial or lawyers like those industries nobody gives a shit in New York, you see so many different kinds of people. It's not shocking or weird at all to see someone with purple hair or to have a ton of tattoos. And so I think that bleeds over professionally. Um, that being said, 
I'm sure there will be loosenings of restrictions, um, especially like as bosses basically beg their employees to come back into work and not quit. Uh, I, I mentioned this last podcast, but there's uh, this, this book, Coffee Land, that uh, talks about World War II specifically, where, you know, because of the war, there's all these worker shortages. Uh, and that's where the coffee break came in because they're like, uh, we have to hire, like, not like these young men. We're going to hire, you know, maybe some older people and maybe some women. And to basically stop themselves from exhausting themselves with factory work, we're going to, you know, give them 15 minutes to drink a cu- cup of coffee twice a day. And then after the war was over, they just basically were like, no, we're doing this for now on. And that sort of like instituted our break culture uh, or a lot of our break culture. And I think, you know, not with coffee, obviously, but I feel like similar things might happen with COVID where, stretched a little bit we've sort of gotten a lot of leniency in some areas and people might be like no i'm not i'm not wearing some like really stuffy uncomfortable dress shirt yeah i think that's a good like general point as well even with beyond just attire like so many norms have changed in the past year on both sides like in terms of expectations of employers and expectations from employees and it'll be interesting to see like what shifts back and what changes are permanent because even things like flexible working schedules it seems like a lot of companies are saying like okay if you've been getting your stuff done in this way that's awesome but it seems like some are saying nope got to come back into the office no more uh lockdown work from home sweatpants stuff it's really interesting to me that a lot of companies require you to sit in your chair from like eight to six or nine to five or whatever hours you work like if you're done with your work at 12 you can't leave and i've worked in office where people have been like no but you're just gonna leave right now at 12 like you should be here in case we need you so i'd literally have to sit there until five even if i had nothing else to do well it's that like indentured logic in the sense where like you have to be there like those 40 Mm -hmm. hours or whatever the company owns you so you have to be there so even if you finish your work which creates that like really unhealthy work culture in some cases of people that just like fuck around on their computer for three hours even though they're done with their work because they're not allowed to leave yeah I wonder if that will change as well. Like people will now say like, no, I'm done. And there Mm -hmm. will be, the workforce will demand flexible working hours or will just be more forceful in saying, I'm done with my work, measure my results, not the hours that I work and get Mm -hmm. them done. I don't think we're ready to be that brazen about it, but I think people will be like, I'm going to work from home with the implicit understanding that like, if I finish by three, I'll respond to your Slack messages, but I'm not going to sit around and pretend to work, you know? Yeah, I think that is like the, I don't want to say the sad state of affairs, because like, it is what it is. And I think there's in many areas of society, we sort of have like, not open lies, but things that we know, but you just like, can't say that everyone knows. I think it will be like that for a while. I think that maybe, and I don't, I hope this doesn't veer off your topic too much, Serby, because it's a great topic. But I do wonder if this leads into stuff like, along with all the attire stuff, does the past year help us get closer to something like a four-day work week or companies experimenting with stuff like that? I saw that um, yesterday, uh, there's a, I'm forgetting the name of, there's a research group um, in the UK that's trying to advocate for a four-day work week. And they put out a huge poll in the UK and it was like 63 or 70% of people were all for that. Um, obviously a lot of companies have already tried that out. So I will be curious to see if along with the tire stuff, there is any like formal experimentation with work hours and structure. That would be really interesting. Um, I, I, 
I'm not sure if this is real. I saw it when I was going to sleep, but it was like a, there was a headline about Japan experiment Mm -hmm. or thinking about it. And I was like, really, Japan might be doing a four day work week. That's, that would be amazing. Um, Just because the, for those of you who don't know, the Japanese business culture is quite intense. So the idea of, of, uh, of there being a shift towards working fewer hours would be quite significant. Um, I also, I'm curious. I read this article that said um, most people would rather quit than go back to work in the office full time. Yeah. Um, and I'm I 100% agree with that. I feel like it's a slow death working in the office, but I, I know that hot take. I want to be in an office at least once a week, twice a week. No. I've been working from home for four to five years, and sometimes it's just nice to see a human who's not living with you. I, I, I agree. This is where I'm also a freak. This has been my first full year working from home, and I, I cannot say enough how much I hate it. <laughs> um, I like my house to be a place where I just like hang out, and my brain is like, oh, you're at home. You can just do chill stuff, um, not like, oh, you're at home, do work stuff. And there is something about like being in a place around other people, I don't know, having a space that's like neutral to be in. I don't know. I I wouldn't mind a world where offices have more of like a casual thing where you have some sort of like open working space, come in when you need to, you know, some decent snacks and carbonated beverages, maybe not too crazy. Um, But, you know, some some stuff to mix it up a little bit, because I just feel like if like it shifts to a full work from home thing, that seems dangerous because then it becomes like no distinction between labor and life. And we're always working a little bit and that sort of stuff. You're also like carving out a portion of your apartment you know, like for a workspace. So you're basically paying your rent, paying the rent of an office for yourself, for your boss. So there are some startups that are starting to provide like a, I mean, I agree with everything you both are saying. I think you have valid points. Um, there, an emerging trend that I've seen is that uh, some startups are starting to offer a home office stipend. Mm-hmm. Um because for those of you who don't know, if you work from home, you're no longer allowed to, in the United States, you're not no longer allowed to um, receive any sort of deduction, or uh, um, the word is escaping me, but you can't receive a tax break um, if uh, you work from home before you could claim things like yeah. utilities and things like that, but you can't do that anymore. Um, and so some startups are starting to offer, like, I don't, can't remember how much it is, but like I think it was like one article I saw was like five hundred um, dollars every month um, mm-hmm. to cover to cover expenses, and I think that is a move towards recognizing that that it is a bit of a financial burden to to work from home because we're using our utilities, our water, our everything um, to be at home. So um, I was going somewhere with this, but but maybe no, if- yeah more companies could do that it could offset those those costs um but i i also have heard of places startups having like hubs um mm-hmm. where you can like come as you, come and go as you'd like as you were mentioning burns so that could be something interesting i could see the appeal of doing something like that especially if i was traveling around the world it would mm-hmm. be nice to go to like the paris hub or whatever and work with people there the for, paris hub sounds great 
Um, <laughs> no, but like right before the pandemic got kicking, there was a thing that started in Los Angeles that I was really curious about where a, a place I like, um, I'll just say what it's called, the, the Lodge Room in Highland Park. It's like a music venue. Um, it has a restaurant, but you know, only open at night. And they started this thing where during the day they left this very like cute restaurant cafe space open. And if you paid like a membership, you could just go hang out, coffee, tea, and beverages, um, some snacks, Wi-Fi, all that shit. And it was like a pretty low fee to be like a member there. And I was kind of like, that would actually sound kind of cool. A place where I could go whenever it's like a cool looking space, have coffee and tea or whatever. And then they were doing like a happy hour. So at the end of the day, you get like a cocktail or whatever. But it stopped because it was right, right when the pandemic picked up. But stuff like that, I was like, okay, not like we worky stuff because I watched that documentary and that place is us. Um, but you know, more like chill local stuff would be cool, especially a way for coffee shops to fight the the uh, people that sit there all day. I went to my local coffee shop that just reopened in person for the first time yesterday, and they had a little sign on the tables that are like, "Hey guys, we're just like getting back to it, and capacity is limited, so like maybe think about getting up from your table when you finish your drink." Um, and I like the subtle, like, don't sit here all day. This isn't your office thing. Um, I like assault on customers. Yeah. Yeah. So I will never be going there again. No, I'm kidding. Um, so real quick, before I move on to our topics, what's everyone's ideal work outfit? Like what, what, if you could wear whatever you wanted that you feel, and I want to be clear here, I'm not saying most comfortable because for some people, if you go too comfortable, you're not going to be productive because then you might feel too cozy. So we'll start with Alec ideal work attire. A black t-shirt you see me on this podcast wearing one all the time mm-hmm. and some shorts yeah uh serby how about you ideal work outfit so i have a work from home uniform i have 10 black shirts 10 black pants um my serby jobs <laughs> it's only because they were on sale um <laughs> that's the you only reason be a server at a restaurant <laughs> um so uh the pants are great because they have like an elastic waistline um as i mentioned earlier i have issues with the button um so that's great and i i like things that are very very soft um i have an issue with like textures and like the way things like feel on my body um and so things have to be super soft and then I also have like five designated sweaters that I only wear while I'm working. I like that. Yeah, I'm kind of halfway between y'all. Um, it's weird to say this now because it's getting hot where I live. But I think my ideal work from home thing is a, a pair of like structured shorts, not gym shorts, something with some yeah, structure. structure. To them. You need structure. Yeah, I need to feel structured there. But then I want to be wearing a soft hoodie um because i like sometimes if i'm working it's to be a little chilly like to pull the hood up and kind of feel like i'm I'm in this little zone when i'm focusing on stuff i think that's my ideal work thing is the work i want to revise my answer i want to mr robot it like you yes um for me i mean that's i, I don't want to outright say hacker for man. me yes being hacker man is my ideal thing so um you know we'll get this later but if you're in the chat let us know what your ideal work outfit would be now monumentous occasion today for many reasons um because we're all together and that's great serbia has a really cool coffee cup i like the aesthetics of it nice little color palette but guys alec is going to talk about sports this is big for me i feel like i'm the weirdo that's occasionally brought up uh, professional athletics on this podcast i've almost been fired for it multiple times corporate is called down very pissed but alec talk to us about athletics today uh yeah so the ncaa is an organization for college athletes for those who don't know (laughs) um they don't pay their students in fact it is against the rules for them to make any money for people in college basketball college football to make any money um 
And even to the extent that formerly there were caps on how much like educational payment they could get. So traditionally they get some tuition back, et cetera, et cetera, but there were limits. Uh, according to a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court, uh, those caps have been lifted. The fact that this is unanimous is crazy to me. Um, I'm, I'm basing all of this off of a BuzzFeed News article by uh, Sarah Mims. Uh, the, this is from the article. The decision doesn't mean that NCAA athletes will start drawing salaries for playing, nor will affect the ongoing battle other, over whether players can profit off of their own names or likenesses. But it will mean that schools can do a lot more to attract and compensate students who play NCAA Division I basketball and football. Though the decision is narrow, it's a significant step for advocates who have pushed to compensate NCAA student-athletes. Uh, it goes on to say, the decision will mean that schools can compensate athletes not just with scholarships to pay for the cost of attendance, that's already allowed, but also pay for things like computers, musical instruments, graduate programs, and other education-related costs. Schools will also be allowed to pay for student-athletes, study abroad programs, offer other scholarships, and fund internships after they've finished playing for the school. I like musical instruments. I, I'm sure this is what they mean, but I just imagine, like, come play football for us. We'll give you, like, the signed Eric Clapton guitar. That he played with Cream at Wow. If you played at Woodstock, no, I don't know. Um, Didn't play. I don't think they played at Woodstock, but he did play with Cream. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's a, it's a little incredible to me because uh, as someone not interested in sports, I'm kind of interested in the legal aspects of sports, and a lot of it basically seems like insanity to me. For instance, years and years ago, there's a Supreme Court case about professional baseball where the Supreme Court said, hey, monopolies are illegal. Uh, baseball might be a monopoly because the players, you know, as employees can't choose where they work for. They get traded around. Uh, but baseball is a national pastime. And so we're going to call it an acceptable monopoly. And that's just straight up what the Supreme Court said. Uh, it's magical. It's American. It's OK to treat your employees like shit. Um, similarly, there's been. Uh, court cases with the NCAA over things like people playing in the 70s or 80s or, or 90s, 20, 30, 40 years later, their faces are appearing in uh, uh, like Xbox games uh, and they're not making any money mm -hmm. for it and they're not students anymore, but they can't get paid jack shit. Uh, and, you know, college coaches are making millions of dollars and, you know, uh, schools are bringing in millions of dollars and they like to paint it as, oh, it's good for the school, brings in all this money. But it just seems like a self-sustaining infrastructure of sports itself that enriches them and doesn't seem to enrich, you know, the actual students. Um, so I thought it was really interesting. Um, before we get your thoughts, one, one sort of thing I, I wanted to talk specifically about is this idea that I don't understand at all. And perhaps you can explain it to me, Burns, but the NCAA's defense is that, uh, well, this is a quote from the article. The NCAA fought the case in the name of amateurism, arguing that not paying students is what makes the players amateurs and distinguishes college sports from professional sports and makes it popular. Essentially, their argument boiled down to Americans love watching college basketball and football in part because the players are not paid. Uh, at one point, leading uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh to say... Um, to pay no salaries to workers who are making schools billions of dollars on the theory that consumers want schools to pay their workers nothing. That seems entirely circular and somewhat disturbing. Uh, just as Clarence Thomas said, he thought it was odd that coaches' salaries have ballooned given that amateurs, that they are amateurs just like the players. And Kavanaugh, back to Kavanaugh, said uh, it was basically like people going to restaurants because they like that the chefs are not paid. Um, oh, why do I have to agree with something Brett Kavanaugh said? Shit. I mean, it's a unanimous decision, which yeah. I find, uh, you know, good good for them. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think 
the amateur argument to me has always been weird because I, I think people compare it to like art, like, oh, you know, we've seen it. Musicians get popular, they get famous, they start doing it for the 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 money, and then you know they sell out. Like they their their music isn't as good. But like, what does selling out look like in a fucking basketball game? Like, I'm only gonna like dunk this basketball so I can get more money. No, you're still trying to fucking win. Like, yeah. I'm not saying it's not like there's not artistry to it in that way, but the artistry is completely different than like a creative thing where it is possible to sell out. Yeah. Well, those analogies are good because think about if in any other industry there was a multi-billion dollar industry that made universities individually millions of dollars let them sell sponsorship deals coach and most if you look at the highest paid state employee in most states it's a football coach because in most states the highest paid state employee is the coach of the big football team from the state university um you know any other industry that had this much money involved and then you said the people who produce the product are unpaid laborers. And then, you know, people historically have said like, well, you know, they get a college education. Well, in most of these, in most of these cases, especially if you're a division one, let's say like basketball or football player, you're not, you don't have time to be that committed to your academics. And that's not even your fault because they put so many requirements on you um, in terms of athletics. They give you these little stipends, but there's been some really kind of sad stories over the years about collegiate athletes who like can barely afford to eat. I'm going to have to like borrow money just for basic life essentials because a lot of them don't come from money and you also, and like can't take out extra loans in a lot of cases on top of what they're already doing. Can't work other jobs. Cause when would you have time between a full-time student and essentially a full-time athlete? And I do think like, I think in a perfect world, colleges wouldn't have sports. We would just have, you know, lower league well, professional sports. sports. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't want to abolish all sports, you know. But, you know, it's like in Europe, if you are a really good soccer for our European and non-American fans, football player, um, you know, you can join a team at 16, 17 years old, play in a lower league, work your way up. So at least you're like making an income, doing the thing you're eventually going to do. And it would be so much better. And this is this is starting to happen in basketball where players are either going to play overseas after high school or joining the NBA G League. The G League is the developmental league that got recently sponsored by Gatorade. So it's now the G League. Um, Real thing. But like that would make more sense. But if these colleges are going to make millions and millions of dollars off these athletes, like do something, whether it's like taking a share of the money raised and putting it in some account that they get when they graduate. I don't even like that. But I'm just thinking like they have to do something because it's ridiculous um the amount of money that's produced off unpaid labor but do you like i i can't even fathom this whole and i've heard it for years and years and years i like college sports better because you know they're not doing it for the money i can't even fathom it because it doesn't make sense to me i'm like you're you're playing us you know it's this fetishization of of athletics tying into some pure expression of humanity and like competition, camaraderie, teamwork. And these are these core values. Sorry, but it it makes no sense. And often it is older men who have good jobs, who fetishize young men who don't get paid to do these things. And, you know, you have the history of the Olympics as well, where for so many years to compete in the Olympics, you had to be an amateur. Um, It was only kind of recently that professional athletes started getting to play in certain sports. In the Olympics, like it's really problematic, and I can't see any good reason to say that it's better or 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 anything because of that. And like they're not in it for the love of the game. I mean, I'm sure they love the game. You're playing in college so that you can play professionally, ideally. Yeah, the amateur thing doesn't make like 
I like if it's the Olympics where it's like, hey, these are just people who fucking swim as a hobby. Like, let's watch them compete. That's cool. But college basketball is professionalized. They just don't get paid. You know, like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry, um, Serby. What do you think? Um, I I think the whole thing is just fucking dumb. Um, <laughs> I I'm very curious. Um, I. I know that a lot of I think I I feel like I've uh, seen a lot of um, college athletes speak out about this, but um, it makes me wonder how do you continue? Like for me, if I if I heard the um, NCAA's argument that uh, we're amateurs and we shouldn't be compensated because of that, I think I would be so fucking mad and so bitter about the whole thing. Like I would. I just don't know that I could ever move past that. I'd be like, really, you're making a lot of money off of my amateur talents. Um, and if we are such amateurs, then why are you like, why are you, uh, I completely lost my train of thought. Anyway, I just think uh, the whole thing is pretty dumb. The the only yeah. unpaid amateur sport I support is the Great British Bake Off. Uh, for I mean, me, yeah, I, I would say American Ninja Warrior, but yeah. I am with you with the Great British Bake Off, but ever since Mary Berry and Mel and Sue left, I can't get behind it as well. Okay. I can't get behind it as much. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I will say, as someone who doesn't watch Great British Bake Off, I apologize, and I'm sure everything you're saying is good, and I agree. Um, but the complicated thing with college sports then ends up being this case where... You know, if you were, let's say, a men's basketball player at the University of Kentucky, which is like a a historically famous program, maybe you're there and you if they're going to pay you your fair share of the advertising money, tickets, merch, whatever, you're going to get a big chunk of change. But let's say you play lacrosse at a division three college in Iowa no one's going to your games. You're not on TV or whatever. So it creates this sort of like inequality, I guess, where some athletes could be getting paid at professional levels. Some might not get anything. So that does, I mean, this is like devils advocating, advocating it a little bit. And this is why I still think it'd be better if these teams just became privatized, we could keep them in the same places, like take the Florida state Seminoles and just make them the like Tallahassee amateur football team or something. But you know, those are some of the arguments that get used against this. Sometimes that it'll, be unfair just, just, just distribute the money like you know every player regardless of what they're playing if that's your problem of it's unfair give the lacrosse money some football money so give from, the lacrosse team some football money from each player according to their abilities to each player according to their needs i don't so know maybe, since uh, when is the ncaa like, like leading the charge and like equal pay and shit no they're not. like why, they why don't you fucking Just come never. work in business and like do something worthwhile because if that's the argument and the prevailing sentiment is like oh it's not fair it's like oh really where the fuck have you been for the last hundred years like why aren't you come helping me with my fucking pay? I'm 50 grand underpaid. Come help me. Yeah. Um, I would love to hear if anyone who who listens to us is a former college athlete, athlete would love to hear your thoughts on this. So if you are listening right now, we'll, and we'll, we'll tell you how you can get in touch with us in a little bit. So keep listening, but or, or if you folks. appreciate the amateurism, I need to know. I, I just, I just want to hear all about it. Like I, I only I like things that are unpaid. Back. I want my yeah. food made by unpaid labor. I want my sports to be unpaid. I want my bus drivers to make nothing. <laughs> That's not true, to be clear. Yeah. Um, 
Well, we'll see what happens with this one. It's, 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 it is interesting that like the, this is one of the few things our Supreme Court could agree on these days. And it's very interesting that this is one of the things that gets a unanimous vote. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. Um, so we'll close off on a real white topic. Um, <laughs> critical race theory. Um, the, the reason I, I kind of want to talk about this is, uh, you know, I'll put our cards on the table where we're maybe working on doing something for the channel that has to do with this topic. So I've been reading about it and listening to some podcasts and watching some really weird YouTube videos that deal with this topic. And for most of us, I don't know about y'all until, I don't know, maybe six, seven months ago, I wasn't really aware of the term critical race theory. Um, what did you say? I, I was, but only because like <clears throat> studied a lot of philosophy, like it came up in debate, but it was always, yeah. it was always peripheral. So it was very strange to me because it's like, Oh, I've heard of this one author that like a couple people I know are super into, you know, these authors who write about these things. But, uh, the idea that they're sort of overtaking America. I was like, no, that's stupid. Yeah. I mean, the only reason I really knew about anything is I knew um, that Earl Sweatshirt, the really talented hip hop artist, mom is one of the um, main figures behind it. Who's Wait, sorry. Who, you've told me this, but who is it? I, and now I feel very bad that I'm forgetting her name, which is horrible because she's one of the, the key scholars around this. It'll hit me in a second. Um, oh, Cheryl Harris. So Cheryl okay. Harris is a professor at UCLA, um, and she's the the mother of hip hop artist Earl Sweatshirt, um, very you know famous and well known in her own right, and makes sense of why her son makes really interesting smart music because he grew up in such an interesting household. But it's it's one of those things where like I've and I assume I get what this is. I know what critical theory is, so I, I can assume that I know what critical race theory is, like taking the methodologies of critical theory to bear on thinking about race, but. It's blown up and it largely blew up in the public discourse after the New York Times started their 1619 project and then President Donald J. Trump um, started a 1776 commission to combat it, which put together a group of non-historical scholars to argue um, for the, the pure goodness of America. And I think initially a lot of people took both the 1619 Project and this notion of critical race theory as an affront to the history of this country, something that is like pure and good. So it's become a sort of catch-all phrase recently, not for the actual legal methodology and its, its own purpose. But for the idea that ideas adjacent to this or ideas as far ranging as like feminism, Marxism, anti-racism, white supremacy, all of these things are now lumped into this thing called critical race theory such that um, it's now officially been banned um, and banned in terms of being able to be taught in public schools in eight U.S. states with nine other states in the process of doing so. So we're getting to a point where a third of American states will have a formal ban on the teaching of critical race theory. So I want to talk a little bit about like what it is, um, the culture around this right now. And then we can I want to hear what y'all think about this. You know, it's and just to be clear, if you're listening to this right now, it's like a big topic. There's a lot of sides to this, but this is just get the ball rolling. Um. Now, critical race theory started in the 80s by some legal scholars, many of whom were like grad students. And I'm going to be kind of casual with this. I'm not reading off anything, but um, they were grad students at Harvard. Professor they liked a lot leaves because he's like, this place is kind of racist. I don't really like this. They start their own little crew. They start a conference. They start getting together and rethinking what it means to approach legal theory 
um, from the perspective of being like legal scholars and lawyers of color, how they're combating racism within their field and thinking about it in sort of systematic ways. Now, they're influenced by critical theory. Critical theory uh, comes out of the Frankfurt School, and it's a bunch of like philosophers, sociologists, theorists who are using philosophy and social theory to examine society, not in terms of individual beliefs or desires, but societal and cultural structures, meaning that like if if we're going to say that like Billy is racist, the question isn't why does Billy feel racism in his heart? It's what are the structures in his life and education that have led Billy down a path where he's become uh, sort of interpolated as this like racist subject? Um, so that's kind of like the framework of critical theory. They take that into looking at the law. So critical race theory in general had nothing to do with like teaching children that Thomas Jefferson was bad, although he is and was. Um, it has to do with looking at the law, um, the, our theory of rights in America, and the way in which many laws participate in these structures that perpetuate bad things. Um, now for the critical uh, critical race theorist, you know, for them, racism isn't like a bad vibe you have in your heart. It's a systematic and institutional thing. It's not about individual feelings, beliefs, and preferences. Also, they argue that race is a socially constructed identity because, of course, they point out some of the literature there. Um, when, uh, you know, enslaved humans came over from Africa, there was no category of like, these are black people. It was people from diverse cultures speaking tons of different languages from lots of different areas, but they get conflated into this one social category by the people. Um, you know, by white people that were, were running plantations and stuff like that in America. So it's kind of like the, the general framework there. But now um, it's being banned in schools. The, the fun thing is I looked up a Texas Tribune article talking about this and they interviewed some teachers and I found this very funny. So this is, it's not funny that it's getting like banned at the state level. That's very problematic and weird, but it's funny. Some of these teachers responded um, how they responded. So Andrew Robinson, who is an eighth grade U.S. history teacher said, Nobody in K-12 is teaching critical race theory. If I tried to walk in and teach critical race theory, my kids would just have a blank stare on their face. Um, I, I don't think he's like dissing it. He's simply saying like, this isn't a part of like the, what we teach in history class. Um, someone else said critical race theory is just not being taught in schools. Um, someone else, this is a, uh, Kathleen Brown, who teaches at UT Austin, said a vast majority of teachers in K-12 schools don't know critical race theory. They're not coming into the classroom and saying, I'm going to teach critical race theory. Um, so it creates this interesting question, like, why are we stopping this thing in schools that's not being taught in schools? Um, why do people want to clamp down on the teaching of a thing that's not taught? And what does that really mean? Um, last thing i'll oh sorry go ahead alec well i was gonna say um i was speaking to a teacher from florida where uh governor DeSantis similar order and i was like you know this is this one this is an anecdote uh this is one te teacher's sort of experience but i was like what, what does it actually mean right because you know you're not going around teaching kimberly crenshaw or, or Derek bell mm -hmm. or any of these people um and she was basically like it's super vague and basically it means that uh if i say the wrong thing and offend the like wrong kid, they're going to complain to their kid, their parents. And then like, I'm going to get fired. Um, and, and I, I think that's part of the scam is that it is, if you want to, if you want to criticize the work of Kimberly Crenshaw, like go ahead. Yeah. There are certainly criticisms of it, but basically people have made it so amorphous to be like, well, you said that racism is bad and you said that like slavery was bad. So that's critical race theory. Um, so basically like, I feel like, you know, 
talk about free speech, like a bunch of teachers are going to sit around being like, ooh, like, is it okay to mention that, you know, Thomas Jefferson did medical experiments on his slaves? That might be critical race theory. Someone might complain mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. I mean, I think of it like with the school example, it's almost like if my son, Chadwick the third, is in class, I guess the fear is that like the teacher will teach about the history of racism, white supremacy, all these structural things in America, then my son Chadwick will feel bad about himself. And Chadwick will think, oh no, am I bad for being white? And a lot of the critical race theorists don't want Chadwick to feel bad. The irony, of course, is that the entire framework of critical race theory isn't to say that Chadwick should feel bad about himself. It should be that Chadwick is unconsciously participating in systems that predate his conception that have shaped the way our society and culture and legal system works, and we can think about those things critically. Um, so Chadwick, my golden boy, is not like a, a Klansman now. It's just that uh, he might be unaware of the privileges afforded to him as being a white in, in the current system or something like that. But it seems like the fear is that he, he cries and comes home and I call the school and say, how dare you? Yeah. It's amazing to me the lengths we'll go to to prevent a white person from feeling uncomfortable, but people of color, they can just kick what, rocks. What is also so like perversely fucked up about this as critical race theory, as a, it's about the systems. It's again, not about like, uh, oh, you have hatred in your heart. It's like, hey, we have all these laws, the way our courts work, the way prosecutors work, they're all supremely fucked up. And like, you can feel bad. You could go to a diversity training, but that's not going to fix this shit. Like, we need to like change laws, change our legal structure, etc. Um, I was reading. Uh, there's a great New Yorker article about this guy who basically popularized it among conservatives called Christopher Rufo. Um, but basically, he was reading like Robin DiAngelo. Uh, what's her book called? How to be. What? Oh, is, white is fragility. White fragility. Yeah. Yeah. Like he read some of these sort of like, you know, very sort of corporate friendly, like anti-racist yeah. things. Um, and noticed like in one of the 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 footnotes, there was like reference to Kimberly Crenshaw, one of these critical race theorists. And he's like, Oh, is this the secret behind it? But people like Kimberly Crenshaw in this article makes a comment like, hey, I think a lot of what these like uh, diversity trainings are doing is like not what I would do or not what my work stands for. Like, uh, you know, not that she's categorically opposed to them, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a weird conflation that basically has become to mean anything that I don't like. Yeah, I mean, the conflation thing is real. I think it it, it gets used to describe um, anything that implies or points out systematic racism in the foundational history of the country it it's used to crit to criticize anything that's critical of capitalism um anything that calls the dominant system into question is now critical race theory incredible Um, it's like it's like postmodern neo-marxism it's like basically like cultural bolshevism which was the nazi term and i'm not saying all these people are nazis but i think these sort of Mm. bogeymen and it weirdly like i remember there's this one glenn beck episode where he like had this bored about like why feminism was Marxist or something. And like, it all went to like Angela Davis and Herbert Marcuse. And in this article about Rufo, it's basically the same thing. It's like, well, you know, Herbert Marcuse was a Marxist and he taught Angela Davis and she was a feminist. So therefore, <laughs> well, Marcuse came up. Um, so one of the people who's sort of like the quote unquote intellectual figures around this is James Lindsay, who has a PhD in mathematics. 
Um, Great. noted like mathematics, not humanities, not sociology, not literature, not philosophy, not legal studies. Um, and he runs a website called new discourses. I shouldn't even said the name cause I don't think you should go to it, but, um, he's been speaking about this and writing about this. He likes to throw around like words like Marcuse and Marxist. Um, recently he did an, uh, segment on Mark Lamont Hill's YouTube show where he talked about this and it's very fun at the end, Lamont Hill, who who's like a legit humanities and politics scholar kind of owns him at the end by showing he doesn't have any idea what he's talking about when he says Marxism, because Marxism, like for many of these people, and to be clear, I'm not saying Marxism is good or bad. I'm just saying it means a thing. And there's a history behind that word and a series of concepts that go with that. And they're just throwing it around to mean like, I don't know, like your kid gets put in a camp or something. Um, and the same guy, Lindsay, and I'm not done with this yet. He did a four hour podcast about Hegel and how um, 19th century German idealist philosopher um, George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel is at the heart of what he calls wow. critical race theory and wokeism in America <laughs> and how it can all be traced back to that. Um, I've listened to a little bit so far and it made me want to rip my eyeballs out and then you, shove you, them in my you ears. You know a lot about Hegel. Would you, would you consider him a woke philosopher? <laughs> no i mean he's definitely not the heart of this and if anything hegel's is someone who like thinks about concepts that's all he cares about is the conceptual framework for our thinking so you could say that something's hegelian it just means you're thinking about it in a certain critical way ridiculous um but i'm going to keep listening to that podcast because i want to do stuff um but I, i'd say the final thing i find great about this is so much of it boils down to this that critical race theory is racist against white people and that is another thing you will see in a lot of the discourse and the literature, which once again is funny because critical race theory itself talks about how race is a socially constructed category. So to say that you're racist against white people essentializes this thing called whiteness in a way uh, that, that would be against that structural analysis anyways. But yeah, I just, I don't know. I'm trying to be like open and stuff. I don't even know what that means to be racist against white people. Thoughts and prayers for white people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the other part of the scam is like to talk about racism's critical race theory, to talk about race as critical race theory, but actually because because talking about race means critical race theory, if you say the word white, therefore it's racist, which which like as a as a framing of a thing, you can't if you're talking about slavery, it's like, well, who who enslaved Africans is like, well, you know, you can't say you can't say white people because that that's racist. You know, it was like particular people. Yeah, it was happened to be from Europe. Or like what kind of parents were, you know, boycotting school integration? Well, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, who who has like money, you know, generation through generation from slave plantations? I, I, I can't tell you anything. It's Sorry like, that their grandparents worked hard, Alec. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I will say with all this, like, and I, I mean, this genuinely, if you're someone, this is a part of the discourse. There's a lot of people that are using very flashy arguments to get at this. Um you know, I would just say that a lot of the, the critical theory aspect of this critical theory isn't some like hella ideological way of thinking about stuff. It's a way of just critically thinking about society. If you listen to this podcast and you like wisecrack stuff, you at least have to have some appreciation of philosophical thinking and the Socratic method and approaching things with an open mind and being willing to criticize society. Um, you know, this goes all the way back to a bunch of old dead white guys in Athens. So you know, what the critical race theorists are trying to do, as far as I understand it, I'm not a legal scholar, is just take a method of, you know, kind of like presuppositionless critical thinking to bear on the legal structures in our society. 
it's, it's, it's a very reasonable thing to do. It's a thing that if you've studied philosophy or sociology should not surprise you at all. And if anything should just seem kind of like, yeah, why wouldn't they do that? Yeah. This is like normal stuff. Philosophy is so, not about asking questions, Michael. Oh, I forgot. But, but I would say that like, that's the, the thing that makes me nervous about this in general, entering the discourse is the way in which it, it is sort of against asking the questions that are fundamental to the humanities and social sciences. Many of those questions, which presuppose that the world isn't the way it is because of any preordained goodness, but because humans have constructed things in a certain way. And because humans have constructed them a certain way, we can criticize those constructions. But I don't know. Um, any other thoughts on critical race theory? Um, I feel like I have a lot more empathy now for the struggles of uh, the white man. <laughs> Joe, Joe, my, my work here is done. Josh in the chat, I wonder if old dead Greeks thought they were white. I think the answer is no, because the concept of whiteness basically formed around like the French and English hated each other so much. It was uh, very hard for them to come together and realize that they were like the same group of people until they were afraid of slave revolts. And then they're yeah. like, well, we should all get together so we don't get murdered by our slaves. Yeah. I mean, whiteness at one point literally meant like descendants of the Mayflower and then slowly started to incorporate like, you know, the Scots or the Irish or the Germans, the Italians real late in the game, you know, Greeks late in the game. So yeah, I don't really think they thought about that, but also the Greeks like, you know, day drank and cuddled with 13 year old boys. So let's not have them be our idols. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, everyone, Plato symposium, check it out, read it, um, get uncomfortable. So now that we've said all that, we want to hear what you have to think about all of these things. We threw a lot at you today. Um, you know, we're talking about, we, we got into work culture pretty deeply. We got into college athletics and we got into critical race theory and we want to hear what you have to say. So get in touch with us. There's two ways you can do that. One, you email us at culturebinge at wisecrack.co. C-O, no M, leave the M alone, culturebinge at wisecrack.co, or give us a call at 213-534-8807. That is 213-534-8807. Um, Alec, do we have anything in the magical mailbag this week? Yeah, uh, I want to read two emails. Uh, thanks for everyone for sending them in. Uh, the first one's from Robert. Hey, Hurt Serby says she's watching a show that's What If the Norse Gods Were Alive Today and want a recommendation for another show. We'll love to see it. Well, I happen to know of a show called The Almighty Johnsons here in New Zealand that is What If the Norse Gods Were Alive in New Zealand Today. So if you can find it online, find it online, check it out and see if it has interesting parallels. Thank you, Robert. That's so great. Thank you so much for recommending that. I am a huge fan of New Zealand and your prime minister. Uh, so I'm looking forward to checking out your show. I hate New Zealand. Uh, so the next email Whoa. is from Michael. Good name. No, there's only room no, for one mic. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I'll, change, I'll change it. Uh, I wanted to write to you about your discussion of Naomi Osaka uh stance on mental health and press conferences i think it's a situation that reflects an interesting tension in how we discuss these types of issues namely that so often we have to discuss them with a celebrity as the focal point i thought this recent piece in the guardian really summarized it well celebrities high profile figures and influencers have a tr contradictory impact they have a wide reach but their wealth seems to be incongruent with the pain they are trying to highlight you couldn't if you tried find less sympathetic ambassadors for the pain caused by racism or poor mental health and pop stars royalty and the world's elite athletes it becomes easy then to cast their complaints as tantrums rather than cries for help 
that's the quote. Then uh, Michael goes on to say Naomi Osaka made an estimated $55 million in 2020 slash 2021. That's more money than most of us will make in our entire lives. And she's 23 years old. After doing some quick math, her $15,000 fine is the equivalent of $16 for someone on the average American annual wage. Does any of this make Naomi Osaka immune to the issues that can affect mental health? Of course not. However, I think people look at the context and find it muddies the waters when discussing a subject stance that most people will probably find inoffensive a non-issue, i.e. that mental health is important and should be respected. I absolutely agree with many of your comments. Michael's point that press is part of what enables professional the professional game is true. And I love your suggestion that the format should be mixed up or possibly providing players a more positive incentive to get involved with the press. Here's hoping some of that can be implemented. Anyway, thanks for everything you guys do. It really brightens my week to hear the three smart people discuss stuff with nuance and good humor. I think it's a great perspective. What do you think? Yeah, that's great. Thanks for writing in. Right. Yeah. My day when someone like you writes in. I, I appreciate the hell out of it. I, I do. I think it's double. I think some people are like, fuck celebrities. Why would I mm-hmm. be sympathetic to this? At the same time, I've seen people in my own personal lives get over certain prejudices basically instantaneously because of this thing a celebrity did. Um, I had mentioned someone I know. They're very pro like gay rights before marriage equality back in the day, whatever. They're always like being bisexual is not cool, which is a fucked up opinion. But then I was like, Hey, this, this friend of mine is actually bisexual. Don't be an asshole. This person just looked at me and was like, Oh, well, you know, Angelina Jolie used to date women before she married so-and-so. So it must be okay. And I was like, all right, like that's how you got there. Good for you. So thank you, Angelina Jolie for, you know, dating men and women. So people in my life could be on board with it. Wow. I mean, I think the theme of everything today is just like, thank you so much, Angelina Jolie, um, <laughs> for what you've done for all of us. I, I think do think really the theme is thank you so much to white people. <laughs> Serby said that. No one else said that. Alec and I are both shaking our heads furiously. Do not cancel us. Um, cool fact about Angelina Jolie is that she does her own shopping at uh, a Silver Lake. Sorry, the Silver Lake Trader Joe's. I shouldn't have said that because some people seen, go there. But I've seen her there and... I was it's there chill. with Jacob and he was trying to sell the company. I was like, Alec, go over there. Look at Angelina Jolie. I was like, I'm not going to do that, Jacob. Yeah, but that's kind of chill. And I think because you're in it, no one's going to go up and talk to Angelina Jolie. She's scary. I don't I mean that in a good way. She's she powerful. Looks, she, looks, she looks powerful and scary. To a me. powerful bisexual woman, actor, mother, producer, scholar, activist, hero. I will. This wasn't an email, but I do want to shout out um, someone on the YouTube comments. Now, don't make this think that you should leave comments and we're going to read them. So don't let me don't let this get in your heads. But hero of Kush said that um, if we were all substances, Serbia's wine. So that's nice, classy, you know, some you have at nice occasions. Alec is weed. It's just a chill bro you want to like watch some anime with. And Michael is probably Coke, if not at least <laughs> coffee. Something to give you an energy boost, then a crash. I don't know. I, I, think feel I disagree with cocaine. I agree with the other two. I say crack. Wow. Crack? <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking like MDMA. I don't know. I would think more of an MDMA I'll tell, and I'll tell you why, because I get like the up energy weird thing. I get the crash thing, but it is more like positive vibes and not like I'm going to tell you about my business plan. And I don't know if anyone who's listening to this has friends that do cocaine. Um, they're not fun to be around and they will talk to you about the most inane shit and it sucks. Whereas if you're around a friend on MDMA, they might like earnestly share feelings with you. They haven't been able to express because of like unconscious or conscious anxiety. 
and it'll be a really good experience. Um, but like, don't do drugs or do drugs. I don't know. Make your own decisions. You're all adults. <sighs> Sorry about that. But someone started. Nice. But let us know what you think about us. Um, and please do call, email, culturebidgetwisecrack.co, 213-534-8807. That was all the emails, right, Alec? Yep. Awesome. Um, so if someone doesn't want to call or email, where can they find us on the social media? Serby, where are you? Suri Patel 22 on Twitter. Tweet me. Yeah, but be but be cool. Don't tweet her and be weird. Be cool. Um, but any people are, seem to be pretty normal to me. I'm gonna say this: wisecrack fans on Twitter rule. I only have like really cool interactions with uh, our, our fans on Twitter, so keep it up. Um, Alec, where can they find you? I'm at wisecrack Alec on Twitter. Cool, and I'm at Michael O'Burns. Um, we will be back in two weeks with another culture binge. Thanks for hanging out. Like, review, subscribe in the meantime, and we will see you then. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.